Congrats. Thanks for coming out tonight. The way these work, I'm going to give kind of a brief talk. Tonight we're going to go a little bit longer because I think it helps spur questions. Uh, and then we'll open it up for Q&A. Um, so if you're, if you're new here tonight, if you're someone who's not a practicing Catholic, there's a lot of practicing Catholics in the room. And so if you have questions, you can try to talk to me. But there's a whole bunch of faithful Catholics around here. So just kind of grab someone and assume they're Catholic. Because <laughs> they probably are. So tonight we're going to be, it's kind of strange. I felt a little nervous giving this topic tonight. Because it sounds a little morbid. But we're in November. And I was at Matchbuff today, which by Matchbuff did amazing today. They're just an impressive school. But um, November is the month of the dead, and so I thought we should talk about purgatory, right? Because everyone just loves purgatory. Uh, but it's one of those topics that's almost the hardest for Catholics to either understand or explain. And we get this a lot. We have a hard time when people ask us purgatory that seems so strange. What is that all about? So we're going to spend a little bit of time on that tonight. So there, how many of you are nurses or doctors? Okay, only a couple. Usually there's more. Okay, we have a handful. Does it count if you call yourself a doctor? No. It doesn't count if you call yourself a doctor. There's a great book out there uh, by a non-Catholic. There's a guy named Stanley Hauerwas. He's a theologian at Duke. And he has this book called Working with Words. And he has an essay in there that he gave an address to graduating uh, MDs. And it's about healthcare, and it's, it's just fascinating. But anyway, he talks in there and he says, if you were gonna ask people today, modern Americans, if they had a choice of the way they could die, how would they go? And what, what do you think, what would they say? In your sleep? How else? What else about it? At home. In bed, right? In, in your sleep. Those are all true. The, the one that was in there, he also said, is people don't want to know. They say, I don't want to know I'm going to die. I just want it to happen suddenly in my sleep, and no pain is the fifth. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Like, in my sleep, don't know what's coming, uh, painless, great. And then he says, you know, if you took this survey in, in the middle of kind of more Christian ages in Europe, and you asked kind of like medieval Christians how they wanted to die, they would say the opposite. And he says, everything we know about medieval Christians around the issue of death is they actually wanted the opposite. They wanted to know they were going to die. And they actually, believe it or not, a lot of records show they wanted it to be a long drawn out process. They sometimes even wish that it would be painful. Right? It's the exact opposite. And Stanley Hauerwas says the reason for this, if you try to understand this, is that modern Americans are scared of death, but medieval Christians feared God. And the reason they wanted death that way was because they wanted to make sure they went to confession before they died. So we're scared of, of dying a painful death. Medieval Christians were scared that they wouldn't be able to go to confession before they died. That was one of their biggest fears. They, were, they wanted to be able to forgive their enemies and reconcile with people they had sinned against. 
And the suffering piece was that they wanted to be able to make up for some of the sins they committed in their life. Does that make sense? This means yes, this means no. It's kind of crazy to think about, isn't it? That we wish the exact opposite. And I think it's because we live in a less Christian time. But the basic point that Hauerwas is making is that those Christians wanted to prepare to meet God. And that kind of launches me into what is purgatory all about? It's one of the hardest things for us as Catholics to explain. So can anyone tell me, is there a spot in the Bible where purgatory occurs? Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. There, there really isn't. The word's not there. There's no word in Scripture that says uh, purgatory is not a name in the Bible. But neither, by the way, is the word Trinity. Trinity, that word does not appear anywhere in the Bible. And so it's hard for us to kind of explain. What a lot of Catholics do is they say, well, 2 Maccabees, you know, Judas Maccabeus prays for the dead. But a lot of non-Catholics don't have that book of the Bible. So we're like, dang it, how do I explain this? So tonight we're going to just try briefly. And this is crazy, but I just want to tell you, that part of this is I just picked up Dante's Inferno. Well, I finished Dante's Inferno, and now I'm in the purgatory. And I'll just admit to you, like, I didn't want to read it by myself at night in the rectory. I was like, I don't know if I should read Dante's Inferno. We had all freaked out by these, like, punishments in hell. Uh, but then I started reading it, and it was actually, it's just, it's amazing. It's an incredible work. But it's on my mind. And Dante, the way he describes it, is he says purgatory is a mountain. He paints, and it's an allegory. He doesn't mean that literally. But let's talk about it. Why, why does Dante do this? So the, the most important thing, I get so excited about this. This is so biblical. One of the most important biblical concepts for us as Catholics is that God's presence is totally incompatible with sin. God's presence is totally incompatible with sin. God is totally 100% merciful, but he's also 100% holy and just. And so sin and God don't go together. So think about this. What happens after Adam and Eve sin? I know you know the answer to this. My second graders do. (laughs) They have to leave the garden, right? They have to leave. That's just because God's angry at them. It's because they can't dwell in his presence anymore. Psalm 24 is one of my favorite verses for this. In Psalm 24, the psalmist says, Who will climb the mountain of the Lord? Which is where the temple is in Jerusalem. The man with clean hands and pure heart, who desires not worthless things, who has not sworn so as to deceive his neighbor. There's this idea, if you're going to go into God's presence, you've got to be purified. You have to be holy. When Jews went into the temple, into God's presence, there were ritual cleansings that they went through before they went into the temple to worship. You had to be pure and undefiled to go into God's presence in the temple. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah goes into God's presence, and he's like freaked out. He actually says, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. And what happens is a seraphim 
right? Which is a Hebrew word, which means a burning one. These are the angels that are on fire with God's presence. And Hebrews 12, I forget the exact verse, says that our God is a consuming fire. And so the seraphim are so close to God that they're on fire with his presence. And Isaiah enters in, and he's, he's like, I can't dwell in God's presence. So a seraphim takes a tong, he grabs a coal from underneath the altar, and then he burns Isaiah's lips to purify him so he can then dwell in God's presence. Something very, very similar happens in Zechariah chapter 3. It's all over the place, this concept. Um, in the New Testament, we see it in the same kind of places. In um, Ephesians 5.27, this is a great verse. Where's my Bible? There it is. It's funny, you're not used to this. Like Sundays you have your lapel mic, so... So in Ephesians 5.27, it's talking about Christ in the church. It says that Christ desires to sanctify her, right? To make her holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water, which is baptism, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In other words, that she might be immaculate, perfect. God wants to present the church to himself beautiful and spotless, perfect. And then this is all over the pages of the New Testament. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they will see God, right? You, there, there's qualifications. You have to be a certain kind of person. In Revelation 21... By the way, there's more of these. But you're probably already like, okay, we get the point, Father Bernie. But in Revelation 21, 27, St. John tells us, Nothing unclean shall enter the heavenly Jerusalem, nor anyone who practices abominations or falsehood, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. We go on. It's all over the place all over the pages of scripture is this assertion, if you're going to dwell with God, you've got to be perfect. And my favorite example of this is when we do funerals. It's really interesting. If you ever become a priest, all you single guys, we have some more guys tonight. Sorry, I didn't detract for one second, or not detract, uh, derail myself. We had RCIA the other night, and there's like, or it was Bible study, it was for the Bible studies. And there were like 70 young adult women, and there were like three guys. And I was like, I need to post this on Instagram and like send it to all the men of Denver and be like, if you want to find your wife, come to Our Lady of Lords. Where was it? Funerals. So, so if you do funerals, if, if any of you guys become priests and said, when you do funerals, it's so interesting. Right? Everybody canonized them, right? This, this person was amazing. We know they're in heaven. And as a priest, it's amazing to hear the different contrasts. Some eulogies, people will say the most beautiful, powerful things. And then there's some eulogies, they're like, you know, how do I sum up my, my great uncle's life? You know, he really, really liked the Broncos. And like, that's it. And you're like, 
That, that's all you got? Like, you love the Broncos. It's kind of rough. You have to be perfect to enter God's presence. You, you have to go through that purification. And basically, what purgatory is, all it is is the church saying that before you enter God's presence, you have to be perfect. And most of us, before we die, just aren't that way. There's very few people I've ever met who have died and they're really perfect. Now let's take one more distinction and then maybe we'll kind of wrap this up. There's a difference between being perfect and being forgiven. Right? If some of you stay really late tonight and when you have too much beer, don't have too much beer, but when you have too much beer, right, some, some people have like a tendency to grow belligerent. And let's say you're like, you stole my car keys. Don't do this. But you steal my car keys, and you're drunk, and you go and you smash into a tree. And you're like, Father Brian, will you forgive me? I'm like, heck no. God's merciful, I'm not. Uh, no, but I forgive you. And I'm like, of course I'll forgive you. Well, we can talk about the car, but the more important thing is what if you have a problem with anger and with drinking too much? What if that's a problem inside of you? Forgiveness, you know, people go to confession and like, you know, I can go to confession and I'll be like, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. Um, I make fun of other priests too much. I don't know. <laughs> Whatever it is. And I can be forgiven. I can walk away from that confession and my sins are wiped away. But what if that's a habit and a, a disposition in my life? Right, what if I really struggle with jealousy and that's just deeply ingrained in me? That Whatever it is, that has to go away, guys, before you go to heaven. That has to be fixed. You have to become who God intended you to be. And that's either going to happen in this life or it's going to happen in purgatory. And that's the Catholic doctrine. It's not that you can save yourself in purgatory. We don't believe that. People who are in purgatory, they know they're going to heaven. But they need to be purified to enter God's presence. So the main thing, and we'll jump to questions here, and it can be about purgatory, it can be about anything else. But the main thing I just wanted to encourage you to, there's more to this, of course there is. But... One of the things the church teaches is that we can pray for those people that they're purified more quickly. And that God brings them into heaven. And so we forget about that. And this month, November, we have all souls. And it's a great month to pray for your loved ones. It's all, and the second piece, I actually, this is how priests are so weird. But in my edition of uh, the Purgatorio, Dorothy Sayers has this great translation. And there's an artist's sketch of the mountain of purgatory. And there's all these levels. And you have to overcome your deadly sins before you come through purgatory. And God purifies you. It's not you alone. It's almost, it's all God, but you cooperate. But what happens is there's these, like, levels. And the first one is pride. Because if you're, the first thing you have to overcome as a Christian is you have to say, I actually need God. I'm not strong enough myself. And so I can't do this by myself. And so you, you face your pride and you say, God, I need you. And you move up the mountain and there's different sins that you purge from yourself. Where was I going with this? Uh, 
the point I, I just want to make is you have to do that at some point. You've got to become a certain kind of person. You can only do it with God's grace. But you can do it in this life. Oh, that's what I was going to say. Priests are so weird. I was, like, so motivated by that. I was like, I need to get a poster in my house of Dante's Mountain of Purgatory. Like, you put, like, little, like, progress reports on there. And be like, yep, overcame judgment last week. Yeah. So anyway, that's kind of it for me. Uh, Purgatory is real. It's a biblical concept. It's been believed in Christianity from the very earliest days. And so the word's out there, but the concept is. So, I don't want to go too long. So let's just open it up for questions. It can be about purgatory. It can be about anything and everything. And if you're new tonight, if you have a question, if you're like, you know what, I just always wonder, why do Catholics do this? Why do they believe this? Oh, let me go one last point about purgatory. This is why the church, at the beginning of every Mass, we start with a penitential rite. Every Mass, the way we start is we, we ask God's forgiveness for our sins in order to enter into worship. And the church teaches, if you're going to receive the Eucharist, if you're going to be in God's presence, if he's going to enter into you, you need to be free of serious sin. Which is why the church teaches confession is necessary if you have a serious sin before receiving communion. It all comes together. Okay, who has questions? Study. Uh-huh. And my question is, is God's covenant with the Israelites and his favor towards them, is that still exist today? And how does that affect us as Christians? Does God's covenant with the Israelites still exist today and how does that affect us as Christians? Very good question. It's a complex question. Best place to go in the Bible to read about that is Romans chapter 9 through 11. So what we would say as Christians is that everything that God did with Israel was leading to Jesus, right? Like, God's faithfulness is shown through Jesus Christ. Everything he promised to the Jews was fulfilled through Jesus. And so Paul asks the question in Romans 9 through 11, he says, well, what about the Jews who rejected Jesus? Like, they they decided not to believe in the Messiah. What's going to happen to them? And Paul says that God's covenant and his promises are irrevocable. And so what does that mean? It doesn't mean that that anybody can do anything they want and God's going to just save everybody. Everything happens through Christ. But Paul says I can have profound hope. And basically, it's it's a very fascinating argument. But basically, Paul says in, in that section, he says that God brought in the Gentiles and it has made the Jews jealous. And that eventually that will draw them back to him and back into the covenant. So Paul, Paul in Romans 9 through 11 gives a profound hope that through God's grace, the, the non-Christian Jews will be brought into the Christian faith and the Christian covenant. All right, anybody else? Brave souls, yeah. I can. I don't, we have another mic. I don't know if we should use it. It's not working. Okay, two questions. So the, we'll go backwards. First question is, does limbo is still a thing? Does it still exist? 
Okay, so it never did exist. But the reason, this is a great question, I love this. There's a tension in Catholic theology, you cannot save yourself, right? You can't save yourself, you can't save yourself, I don't care how cool you are and what kind of car you drive. You can't save yourself. Mother Teresa, John Paul II, you name it, they couldn't do it. The only thing that gets us to heaven is Jesus Christ. So the church, and, and Jesus teaches that baptism is necessary for salvation. That's all in the scriptures. Romans 6, 3, Mark 16, Matthew 28. I mean, it's just kind of, it's all over the place. The book of Colossians chapters 2 and 3 have so much to do with baptism, it's ridiculous. Uh, but anyway, so the church believes that baptism is, is about being united to Christ in his death and resurrection. Romans 6, 3 says, Do you not know, brothers and sisters, that those of us who are baptized into the death of Christ Jesus... Um, or those of us who have been baptized were baptized into the death of Christ Jesus. We were baptized with him into his death so that just as God the Father is into new life, we too might share in that life. When you were baptized, you were baptized into the death of Jesus so you could also have his resurrection. So a Christian, when you get baptized, what that's about is you can't save yourself. No matter how good you are, you need Jesus Christ. You can't go to heaven without his death and resurrection. And so... We believe baptism is necessary. So that's one thing that's absolutely 100% true. Here's the other thing. We believe in a God who's good and loving and who doesn't send people to hell through no fault of their own. And so the church believes, like, here's my best analogy for this. In my last church, God can act any way he wants, but he's told us certain ways that we're to live as Christians. So at my last church, I was right by I-25, and there is this footbridge over I-25, and if someone asked me, they said, hey, Father Brian, I want to get to the other side of I-25. How do I get there? I would say, take the footbridge. Right? And, but what if they said, well, I don't want to take the footbridge. I want to run across I-25. Could they make it? Is it possible for them to make it across I-25? Yeah, it is, isn't it? But why would you do that? And so God can act any way he wants. He can bring people to salvation because he's God in any way he chooses. But he's told us, take the footbridge. And so baptism, we believe, is a, is a necessary thing that Christ gave us for salvation. But we also believe God's good. So, so anyway, so what limbo is, is that the church never taught that limbo existed. But people were wrestling with that tension of, we know God's good, we know he's loving. Who would send a baby to hell for eternity? And we know that you can't get to heaven without Christ. And baptism seems to be necessary. So they said, there must be a place called limbo where those who are not baptized and it wasn't their fault could be in like an earthly paradise. A couple of years ago, the church came out and said, we never taught that. We don't believe limbo exists. It was an idea that people floated to wrestle with that question. Okay, that was a long answer. What was the other one about? Uh, just about the redemptive quality. Oh, yeah. Suffering can be redemptive. So just because you suffer doesn't mean that it's going to get you to heaven. The key is you have to suffer with love. That's first. So... Um, so Paul believes, this, this is the crazy thing. When you were baptized, you were made a member of the body of Christ. Jesus saved the world through a loving obedience and suffering. That's how he saved the world, is that he loved us so much. Right? Thousands of people were crucified in the ancient world. Thousands and thousands and thousands. 
but that didn't save us. Jesus Christ did, and only his death saves us. But when you were baptized, you were made a member of his body. And then, again, this is all over the New Testament. When you were baptized, you came to share in the life of Christ. He lives in you, you live in him. John chapter 15, Jesus says that over and over again. Paul, Galatians 2.20 is a famous one where he says, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. Right? And so Jesus wants to live in us. Christianity is not just following rules. It's living a life. It's living in God and him living in you. That's Christianity. And so when that happens, what the early church fathers used to say is that fire, if God is an all-consuming fire, like Hebrews 12 says, fire transforms everything into itself. When it touches something else, it makes it fire too. And so the point I'm driving at is that only as Christians, not just if you suffer, but if you were baptized into Jesus, because he lives in you and you live in him, your suffering can have redemptive value. Never on your own, ever. But if it's united to Christ. So Paul says this. So listen to this. This is in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For while we live, we are always being given up to death for Jesus' sake, so the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Here's the key. Listen to this verse. He says, So death is at work in us, but life in you. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Did your mother ever tell you to offer something up? I hate it when my mom did that. It just drove me nuts. It was like, it was like when you tell your mom and you look at that, Mom, I'm bored. She's like, Brian, I've got like 10 things for you to do. I'm like, I'm not bored anymore. <laughs> and whenever anything bad happened, I was like, oh, I hate going to the dentist. Uh, and usually it was, I hate going to church. My mother would always say, offer it up. That's really good Catholic theology. Because Christ lives in you, and you live in him, if you're living, if you're baptized, and if you're living a good life of faith, hope, and love, it's all over the New Testament. We could pull out like 15 texts on this, by the way. God lives in us, and we live in him. If that's the case, then your suffering has meaning. It's no longer just evil, right? This is one of the, I, I, I would love to give a talk about this sometime. This is so key. Christians understand suffering differently than other people do. The world tends to look at suffering it can only be evil. But if, if the suffering of God's Son brought about the redemption of the world, for Christians, suffering begins to have a different sort of meaning. By the way, Father Michael, get over here. You're not saying about you're going to answer some of this. Do you all know Father Michael Lachlan? Let's give a hand for Father Michael. <laughs> Father Michael is a pastor of Holy Protection Church. He's a Ruthenian Catholic priest, so he's a good friend of mine, and uh, we'll bring him up here. Okay, next question.
conception of heaven or hell. We St. Paul says, eye is not seen, ear is not heard, what we have in store for us. So one of the ways that the Eastern Fathers understand it is that when we die, God draws us to himself. That's all he does. And we, we conceive of that as judgment. We conceive of that as, as you know, suffering or pleasure, the big chasm. I mean, all these scriptural references too. But when we draw Christ close to himself, is that heaven to us or is it hell to us? And many would say it that way. So if we have lived our life with an aversion to all the things that are of Christ, to faith, to hope, to love, to goodness, to sacrifice, if we've created ourselves that way, then we do not want to spend eternity near that stuff. So in that sense, purgation or purgatory would be like detox. Because when we, in this world, we get addicted to the things of this world, so we become addicted to sin, especially habitual sin. If we're addicted to the things of this world, after we die, those things don't exist anymore. So it's not like I can build up all these vices and then go enjoy those in hell. Vices don't exist in hell. So if I'm addicted to, to things that are vices, then I'm going to have a hard time in the afterlife, period. Whether that's in hell, being addicted to these things in a way that is is so deeply embedded that I, I would rather be without them but separated from their opposite, which is Christ, rather than being in Christ. So you'll hear sometimes people say that hell is separation from God. Well, in that case, if, if in the beginning was God and in the end is God, and God draws us all to himself, then out of mercy, God would separate some of us from himself to actually alleviate the pain. These are just all, all ways of conceiving of that. So it's pretty much the way we prepared ourselves to be. So the fathers use the image of, of like a piece of wood. Like, so you have a bonfire, right? Fire can be good and fire can be bad. Fire can save your life or kill you. And so if I have created myself to be like a, a stump or like a log, I throw that in the fire, it's consumed. If I form myself by Christ's power to be like a chunk of gold, I throw it in the fire and it gets purified. And it's all how we have, through Christ's power, prepared ourselves to encounter him in the afterlife. Whether that's if I want to be separated from him, literally, my relationship with him is hell to me, or if not, and then purgatory is like a chunk of gold covered in wood. I need to be purged of everything until I am actually purified, and that's what purgation or purgatory is. So, to answer your question, I think you can say yes, generally. We... we Heaven is union with God, and that starts here on earth. If I've united myself to God here on earth, I'm going to enjoy union with him. If I've gone as far away from him as I can, then I'm not going to enjoy that at all. Um, you mentioned habitual sin a couple of times. Um, can you just talk about um, maybe ways to fight habitual sin in your own life? And, uh, what you want to talk about? Uh, 
Not true. So habitual sin, how do you fight habitual sin? Well, I, the way I would say, first of all, you can't do it without God's grace, I think. That's so key. Um, so you need to pray, you need to beg God for that grace, you know, for all of us. The, the second thing I would say, though, is, I, I tell people this all the time, is that all of us have lies we tell ourselves. And if you go to Lord's, you know, you've heard me say that repetition is the mother of learning. If you want to learn anything, you just repeat it enough and you'll believe it. That is why advertising is so effective. Uh, if you just repeat something over and over again, you'll start to believe it. And so, for those of you who haven't heard, I'm going to tell a story really quick. Some of you have heard this. Like, when I was a little kid, I always wanted to stick it to my older brother. And so him and I were big Cubs fans. And the best second baseman in the history of Major League Baseball is Ryan Sandberg. And I told... <laughs> I told my brother that I had a Ryan Sandberg rookie card, which I didn't, but I wanted to stick it to him. That's what brothers do. But I told him so many times, but I never let him see it, of course, because it was a lie. But I actually started to believe that I had a Ryan Sandberg rookie card. And when my parents moved houses, I spent like four hours one day searching for my Ryan Sandberg rookie card until I realized that I had made the whole thing up. That was a rough moment. But I think with habitual sin, we lie to ourselves, right? Like, over and over and over. And usually it's about not being loved. No one's going to love me. No one's going to love me. No one's going to love me. You have to tell yourself the truth the opposite way. I tell people this all the time. Whatever lie you've told yourself, you can't just say once, oh, I know that's not true. You have to say, like, or if you, if you see God in a false way, if God is an angry, judgmental God, you have to break that by a thousand times over and over again, building a habit in your mind of understanding that that's not who God is. So there are other things, but I think that's, I think that's the key is habitual sin was formed by a habit. You didn't get there overnight. You took a thousand steps one way. You've got to take a thousand steps the other way with God's grace. Any more questions? When you, if we believe as Catholics that people who are in purgatory are assured of salvation. So they are all going to heaven. Without doubt. It's impossible for them not to. So, but, it, but they have to be purified first. Yeah. Yeah. We have to look at that verse. I think that's in First Thessalonians. Is that right? That's Corinthians. Um, he said, so uh, why does that take time? And then Paul says, in the twinkling of an eye, we will be changed. If I remember that passage correctly, it's the context is the second coming. Christ returned to earth. Now, the only reason we talk about time in purgatory is because it's the only way that you and I can think. Right? You know how it's so hard to imagine infinity? Did you ever try to imagine no beginning? Right, you ever try to think about like how God never had a beginning? You're like, Christophanic says it's like trying to bite a wall. Right? <laughs> it's like trying to think about no beginning. It's like trying to bite a wall. Um, our minds don't work that way. So really the church only uses time in purgatory in an analogous sense. So Pope Benedict has a great line about this where he says, very similar to what Father Michael said, that 
purgatory in some sense, if God is a consuming fire, one theory of purgatory is that really all purgatory is is us being brought to God. And if there's um, things in us that aren't compatible with God, in that first encounter with him, they're burned away. And so Ratzinger says, in a certain sense, you could almost say that God himself is purgatory. 1 Corinthians 3 talks, it has a passage that doesn't say that, but it's it can be very compatible with that. Do you want to say anything God created space and time for us to exist in. That's not natural to him. So it's not wrong for our conceptions of purgatory, even heaven, to think of them in matters of time. But but really, when, when at the end of the world, it will be outside of space and time. We'll somehow have resurrected bodies, but like Christ walking through the door, it'll be different. So purgatory, if you've ever been with a friend when they're detoxing off of like hard drugs, it's they want they want to not have that addiction. They don't, I mean, they want it, but their body has now grown so accustomed to it. So when I worked in prisons, like I worked in really poor prisons, so this guy would come in having just taken heroin, they'd hand him two Tylenol and say, there's your bunk. And he would spend four days just in so much pain I couldn't even imagine it. That's what, the day before he wanted heroin, now he wishes he was clean. So that's kind of what purgatory is. Is it's I was I when I go to purgatory, I'm assured salvation. So I want I don't want to be addicted to my sin, but I am. So, but God doesn't. It's not like He doesn't purge us from sin because He's mad at us. He actually makes us good. So we don't believe that God just says you have all this sin, but I could pretend like you don't and welcome you into heaven. We actually need to get rid of those habits. We need to get rid of that sin. So purgatory isn't just like, well, God decides some of us have four days, some of us have one day because he's more mad at the person with four days. We actually need to be purged, and it is a process. But the only way we understand process is through the concept of time. So, you know, if whatever that might mean for our us being purged so that I can now say I would rather have Jesus than I would have gossip. I'd rather have Jesus than I'd have to have revenge. I need to get to that point. I can't enter into heaven until I'm at that point. But we have to understand that's what purgatory is, is purging us of those things. But we have no idea what that will look like except through the concept which God gave us, which is space and time, which we exist in now. Just to kind of go off of that, I might have misheard Father Brian, but um, that's a great question. Can I say one thing first? Does anybody listen to Catholic Stuff You Should Know? Do you know the podcast? There's a podcast called Catholic Stuff You Should Know. You should all listen to it. He's on it. But if he makes fun of me, I'm asking you to inform me because it's usually lies. <laughs> Yeah, they're trying to get me to listen. I don't, you're, you're like one of my best friends. I'm not going to listen to you in my car. Um, so so that, it's, it's actually debated a little bit, Mallory, about like uh, cooperation in purgatory. But salvation is about faith, hope, and love. And, and like Father Michael saying, we, we have to love God more than we love other things. We have to love him above all things. Um, and so it's a little bit debated, but purgatory, the souls in purgatory know, they, they know that they're on their way to God, right? They're no longer, there's no longer the deceptions of this world. Uh, they're, I mean, that's an analogy. Climbing the mountain is an analogy. It's not necessarily real. But they know where they're going. 
And so there's a difference between this life and that life. So our free will in this life, right, there's lots of speed bumps to us in this life about we get so fixated on, you know, um, turning Our Lady of Lords into an amazing place, uh, which it already is. But you know what I mean? And so in purgatory, there's no distractions. It's just gone. No, I think there is cooperation. So Dorothy Sayers says in that book, there's a great, in that intro to the Purgatorio, she says the big difference between Purgatory and Hell, in Dante's conception, is that in Hell, the souls have very similar punishments to the way Dante conceives the souls in Purgatory. But in Hell, they curse God and they blaspheme Him. In Purgatory, they love Him and they accept their punishments as the way to love him and to come, to be purged, come to heaven. If we look at, at actual sin and the sin that keeps us from heaven, well, well, most of it involves us considering ourselves better than others and not surrendering to God. So in purgatory, you can almost imagine that even though there there is an understanding of some sort of cooperation, the thing we did on earth that got us there was we didn't allow Christ to work in us and we didn't allow others. So in other words, we, we, in our selfishness and arrogance, we, we control too much. We are in a sense control freaks. So in purgatory, we didn't submit to God and we didn't submit to the love of others. So those are the two things that are going to get us out of purgatory. God's mercy and the prayers of the others. So it, it really is a place of definitely less cooperation than here on earth. Because here on earth and others, we cooperated too much in our sin. We didn't let Christ purchase of our sin. We didn't let others assist in that process. So there is much more of a receptivity there because we were not receptive enough on earth. That's why we're there. And so now we're forced to be receptive in order to become holy, in order to participate in Christ, and therefore unite ourselves with him, therefore inherit with him the kingdom of heaven. Let's take one more question, and uh, we're going to try and wrap up. Yeah. There are not lost souls in purgatory, because you can't pray for someone who's lost. And maybe this is a good way to tie it up tonight. But before I just kind of wrap up with this, um, I just want to encourage you, if you're someone who's Catholic, the Catholic faith, the, if you want to grow in your faith, there are ways. You, you need to love other people. You need to serve. You need to serve God first and foremost. But we also need to learn the truth. And the Catholic faith, the digger you deep, the digger you deep, the deeper you dig, <laughs> I've only had one beer, I promise. I didn't finish it. The deeper you dig, the more compelling it is. The more compelling it is. But you gotta do things like this. You gotta read, you gotta talk to other Catholics. You gotta give yourself, you gotta take a chance. Right? God, God demands us to take a chance on him. If you're not a Catholic, I just encourage you tonight, if you're here, thank you for coming. Or if you're a fringe Catholic, you've been practicing, take a chance. Come talk to Father Michael or myself. Uh, talk to a Catholic here tonight, take a chance. Last thing I'll close is Matthew 18. So this is this is a great way to wrap up tonight. Uh, this is maybe my favorite parable in the New Testament. In Matthew 18, Jesus tells the parable of the dishonest steward. Or I'm sorry, it's not the dishonest steward. It's the um, unmerciful servant. And so in, in Matthew 18, there's two servants. There's a king. Servant number one owes the king 
10,000 talents. Now there's different talents in history, but basically a talent is a, it's the largest coin in the ancient world. It's a year's salary for the average person, a full year. So that person owes the king 10,000 years worth of the average person's pay. That's insane. So again, what happens? Right? The, the servant goes to the king. He says, I can't pay. Will you forgive me? And the king says, yes. And he wipes out his debt. Servant number two goes to servant number one, and he owes servant number one a hundred denarii. And so a denarius in the ancient world is a day's wage. So it's still a large amount. If you think of how much do you earn in a hundred days of the year, that's a significant amount of money. It's not small. If you're a priest, it is. But, like, no, actually, we're spoiled. But anyway, the, it's, it's, it's much smaller than the 10,000 talents. And so what happens is he refuses to forgive, and, he, and the king is enraged. He finds out about it, and he takes servant number one, and this is fascinating. He, he calls servant number one, and he reprimands him, and he throws him in prison, and he says, uh, take away all his possessions and sell them, and put him in prison until he should pay the last penny. And here's the fascinating thing. Almost all scripture scholars recognize that that parable is about the last judgment. In the parable, you and I are servant number one. Our sins against God are something we could never pay. And through Jesus Christ, God forgave all of our sins, our 10,000 talents. All right, I can't pay that, Lord. I can't pay back my sins. It's too much. Through Christ, he did that. But once you've done that, God demands something. He demands that you be a person of forgiveness. So you, since you've been forgiven, you have to be a person who forgives others. But here's the crazy part about purgatory at the end of that. Is that it, the king says to servant number one and to the, to the guards, he says, put him in prison. Now, if that's the last judgment... That can't be hell because he says he will get out when he has paid the last penny. Hell is a permanent state. Origen, in the second century, who is arguably the greatest, the greatest scripture scholar in the history of Christianity, arguably, says that that passage is about purgatory. Because prison implies it ends. I forget, oh yeah, he asked the question. I'm like, who asked the question? <laughs> Hell doesn't end. And it can't be heaven because heaven would never be described as a prison cell. And so purgatory, so the point is is that those in purgatory, to answer your question, they know they are going to heaven. They are assured of salvation. Uh, they, they can't go to hell. They will be in heaven. Purgatory will cease to exist at some point. It's not, purgatory is not a permanent state. But I think that's motivation for all of us. So the biggest, the most important thing you can do in your life is not to be accomplished, it's not to be successful, it's to become a certain kind of person. So much more important than what you do is who you are. Is being a, the type of person, like I think of my grandmother, and you've heard me talk about her. My grandmother doesn't have any big accomplishments, but she was holy. And I don't think I'd have been to become a priest without her. And just who she was, that was more important than anything she ever did. 
And so Purgatory is about that. It's about it's about us becoming who we are. So um, we're done tonight. We're gonna do more of these. Uh, if you haven't been to Our Lady of Lords, it's a Holy Protection Byzantine Church. I really encourage you to check that out. Uh, if you've been away from the Church of Sacraments, take a chance. We'll have more of these. LordsDenver.org is our website. And uh, let's just close with a prayer. Actually, Father Michael, please. In the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you, Lord, for this time and this opportunity to gather and to receive the wisdom of Father Brian and the church. Please allow these words to sink in. Please allow any questions we may still have to be answered by you directly or by the, by the words of those who we ask of them. Please allow this to be a part of the process of holiness and then moving towards you, O Lord, in everything. We know that that's what you desire and that you call us and you love us immensely so that we may turn to you. We ask you to inspire us through the softening and strength of our hearts to ask for forgiveness of any ways that we have separated ourselves from you and to welcome your mercy. And please let the rest of this evening be without sin. Let us rest peacefully. Let us call upon you throughout the night and meditate upon your commandments as we fall asleep. For you are holy, our God, we give glory to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, now and ever and forever. Amen. Hang around, no need to leave, get a beer. Half the purpose of tonight is just to meet other Catholics and have a good time. So thanks for coming, everybody. Thank you.